Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We are excited to be able to share the joy of Christmas together today and in this season ahead. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here as well. I'd like to add my welcome this morning, and especially if you are visiting with us, we'd love to have a chance to get to know you better. One of the ways you can help us to do that is you can fill out a Connect card. We have them at the table in the back on your way out if you'd be willing to share a little information about yourself. We have a small gift to give you this morning just as our way of saying thanks for coming out to church. Also, on these cards, uh, on the back, you can submit a prayer request. Every week, the staff gathers and prays for all the requests we receive. Uh, So if there's something going on in your life or in the lives of uh, your friends or family, please, uh, we value this partnership to be able to pray with you and to pray for you. So we'd encourage you to use these cards. Um, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 tell us that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This story of Christmas from Luke chapter 2 is the place where we get this phrase, joy to the world, because the good news of the gospel of Jesus is intended by God to bring joy to the hearts of people on earth. Now, I'd like to suggest for us this morning that that this, this phrase, joy to the world, is both an announcement to celebrate, but it's also a statement of faith. Uh, this Advent season, as Greg has shared with us, is a season of anticipation. It's a, it's a season of waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. It's a season of, of watchful waiting, but also of hopeful faith. And the idea of God bringing joy to the world is not something we just celebrate when it happens, but sometimes we find ourselves in some dark in difficult places, and it can also be a statement of faith that we believe that even though we're going through difficult times, joy will be in our future because God has promised that he will not leave us or abandon us, but that he will bring his promises to fulfillment. As we anticipate the birth of Jesus again this Christmas season, we're reminded of this good news message of the Bible that that even though we live in a world of brokenness and sin, God is a God of both justice and mercy, and that he's promised that if we put our faith in him, he will overcome this world, including our own brokenness and sin that we struggle with in our lives. This pattern of hope and trust in God's promises and in God's faithfulness goes all the way back to the pattern of God's relationship with his people that we see in the Old Testament. And and the prophecies of the Old Testament that, that predicted that God would provide a Messiah, that he would bring a Savior into the world that would solve the problem of human brokenness and sin was a part of building faith into God's people but it also became part of the evidence that God is a keeper of his promises. 
that God has the power to not only make promises, but to, to follow through on what he promises so that it creates joy in our lives and even greater faith among God's people. So if you think about it, that's when we come back full circle to Luke chapter 2, right? That, that we see the signs of God's promises being fulfilled, and, and that joy comes as we recognize that, that the God who has been faithful to his people year after year, century after century, is the same God who is with us today, who promises to be faithful to you and me in our lives, no matter what we're going through. God promises, God's promises will continue to be fulfilled in our lives and in the world. And in these weeks leading up to Christmas this year, we're going to be taking a look at some of the prophetic promises that God has made in the book of Isaiah. And hopefully it can be an encouragement to us to not only celebrate the goodness of God in our lives, but to continue to remember to put our faith in him as the one who can answer the deepest needs and longings of our heart. So in that spirit, as we turn to Isaiah, I'm going to invite you to pray with me again and ask God to open our hearts and our minds to his word to us again this morning. Holy God, as we enter into the Advent season and we anticipate the coming of Christmas again this year, would you be with us this morning? Would you be again our Emmanuel? Would you bless us through your word and speak to us through your spirit about, about how you want us to turn our hearts to you and to, to understand the gift that you've given us in your son, Jesus? Not only as a gift that we receive, but that it's a gift that we can pass on to others as we too learn how to live generous and sacrificial lives in the way that he lived and invites us to live as his disciples. And we will thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning, I want to just take a little time to set up the background and the context for our understanding of some of the prophetic passages in the book of Isaiah. In the next few weeks, we'll look a little bit more specifically into a few particular passages that come from that book. And when we say book, um, it's really more of a collection of the writings of the prophet Isaiah that he put together over the number of years that he was a prophet in Israel. And if you read the book of Isaiah, you see in chapter 1 that he served under several kings of Israel. Some of them were good kings, some of them were bad kings. But we know from the reign of these kings that he names that his writings are dated to about 787 to about 697 BC. So if you think about that, that's roughly 750 years before Jesus was even born. Now, Isaiah saw in his day the rise of the nation of Assyria that came to prominence in the Middle Eastern world at the time. And if you were here with us in our series on Jonah, you know that the Assyrian nation was not a, a very good uh, empire. In fact, they were brutal and cruel, and they did horrible things to people. And so Isaiah is alive at the time when the nation of Assyria is rising in the city of Nineveh that Jonah was called to preach to became the capital of the Assyrian nation. But it's not just Assyria. That, that Isaiah is concerned with. They're, they're already having these local skirmishes with the tribes of Ephraim and in Damascus in the north, and, and they're being pinched by Egypt in the south, which is another empire. And so you have this uh, really complex geopolitical experience going on for the nation of Israel. And if you think about the, the really complex geopolitical dynamics going on in our world today, it might not be too different from, from how we experience life in the world today as well. 
he lived through uh, these good kings and these evil kings. And in the midst of his writings, we see that, that he also saw an increasing apostasy among the hearts of the people of Israel, which means they were turning increasingly away from their God and towards other things that they were putting their faith in, ultimately leading to uh, the exile of the people who, who were taken out of the land of Israel and taken into bondage in Babylon. Now, through the writings of Isaiah, we, we see an overview of the history and the themes of the struggle of God's people to keep faith with him. And in the continual affirmation that God has for them, even in the midst of their apostasy, th that he will make a way to always bring his people back to himself. Now, I just want to do, again, a quick flyover here. Isaiah could be broken up into a series of portraits of this messianic promise that God has for his people. In chapters 1 through 37, we could say that the, the portrait of the Messiah is that he's the Davidic king. He's the, the one who will come after God's own heart like David was, and he will rule over the nation as God's chosen king. In chapters 38 through 55, we see the Messiah coming as the suffering servant. He's the one who's the servant of God and his people, but he will suffer and he will be rejected and he will even die and give his life for the sake of the people. And then in chapters 56 through 66, we see the Messiah coming as the anointed conqueror, the one who returns to bring the righteousness of God to the whole world and to usher in the kingdom of God and God's rule on earth. So these larger themes that are woven throughout the whole book are a part of the, the flow that we can kind of pay attention to as we look at particular passages. But also within each one of these themes of the promised Messiah we, and each portrait, we see that the Messiah is endowed with both the Spirit of God as well as the Word of God. He is the one who is authorized to bring the presence of God and the words of God to his people. And then one other unifying characteristic that we can see throughout the book of Isaiah is this theme of God's righteousness. Righteousness is what describes the, the heart and the character of this Davidic king that will come from the line of David and that will rule over God's people with righteousness. Righteousness is also the heart of the work of the suffering servant, that it, it, it's what the servant brings to, to bring to fulfillment among God's people and righteousness is the outcome and the result of the anointed conqueror who comes, who sees God's kingdom come with righteousness and, and flow over the entire world. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've talked about how this biblical word righteousness talks about how we live in relationship with the world around us. It starts with the vertical relationship with God. Are we living in right relationship with the God who created us? Are, 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 we, are our hearts right with God? And, and if they are, then that leads to righteousness in our horizontal relationships. Are we living in healthy and right relationships with the people around us and, and within our community and within the world that we are a part of. And then ultimately that leads to the question of, are we living in right relationship with the creation that God has given us? Are we living in right relationship with caring for our environment? Are, are, are we dealing with uh, our devices in healthy and appropriate ways? Are, are we managing our money as wise stewards that, that God has given us to manage the money that he's given us? Are, are, are we treating the substances of the world, whether it's alcohol or tobacco or, or marijuana or all of the other 
things of creation? Are we living in right relationship with the world around us? And so we see that this biblical idea of righteousness is, is a holistic view that God wants us to experience the kind of life that he intended for us when he created us. Finally, we recognize that each portrait of the Messiah shows that he's equally embraced by both Israel. He is the Messiah of Israel, but he is also embraced by the non-Jewish world. He is the Savior of the Gentiles as well. In each case, we see that there's a movement from a central work among God's people that flows outward to the world around them so that all of the nations are, are, are viewed as coming back to the city of God. They flood into Jerusalem as God's holy mountain called Zion, and the suffering servant is introduced as the very vehicle of divine revelation to those outside of the nation of Israel. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we also see that this predicted Messiah is described in both plainly human terms and yet as very clearly the presence and the power of God with us. He will be fully human. He comes from the historical ancestral line of King David. He will suffer and die as only a human being can, and yet he will also be fully God, that somehow in this human being will be the arm of the Lord, a, a visible presence of the saving power of God among his people who brings God's true righteousness once and for all into God's world. Now, it's interesting, too. Uh, there's so much of Jesus' gospel woven through the book of Isaiah. I wish we had time to like do a deeper study of Isaiah right now. Uh, maybe we can do that in the future. But so much of Jesus' gospel finds its seeds within the book of Isaiah. And, and you could almost go back and using these prophetic passages, construct a life of Jesus before Jesus was even born. Uh, if, if you do a study of Isaiah, we would know something about the Messiah's birth and his family that he would come from. You would know something about the nature of his anointing to do God's ministry. We'd find something about the character of what the Messiah would be like and the simplicity of the life that he would live. We'd find out that he was going to be a gentle person of heart and that he would experience both death but then also resurrection and that he would have a, a glorious second coming that would usher in the kingdom of God. All of these themes that are so much a part of the good news gospel message of Jesus are already here in the book of Isaiah in seed form where God was preparing his people to understand the plan of salvation that he had through his son Jesus. Yet Isaiah begins with God challenging his people to examine their own hearts. Now we're going to do kind of a quick flyover of some of the introductory verses and chapters of Isaiah this morning to just set the scene for our series as we move forward. Isaiah chapters 1 through 4 kind of set up a, a holy courtroom scene where, where God comes and he calls the heavens and the earth to sit a, a, as the jury as he engages his people in this courtroom scene. God says, come, let's examine the state of affairs and make a judgment about where things stand between you and me. Let's have this DTR conversation. It's time to define the relationship. And so in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So from the very beginning, God is coming to the people of Israel and saying, Hey, we, we've got issues. 
We got some problems we got to work out. I, I created this people to be like, like a father and a son or like a parent and a child, and yet these people whom I've loved, who, uh, who I've brought into this world, have turned their hearts against me. They've rebelled against me in their hearts. And so Isaiah begins in a kind of a negative tone as in a, an indictment of the nation of Israel. My children have rebelled against me. And he imagines a kind of legal court where God ha- is sitting as the judge and he presents his case against the people. And what we see in this exchange is a recognition, I'd suggest for us this morning, that, that turning from God, the, the apostasy from God that we see in the Bible always begins in the human heart. It's never first and foremost our behavior that takes us away from God. It always starts in the human heart. And then what we believe in our heart about ourselves and about our life and what's important leads us to begin to think about our life and our world in a certain way. And then it's our thinking that allows us to make choices for certain behaviors. And so the way we choose to live is always a result of a process of allowing our hearts to be focused on things that are maybe not of God or are not God's priorities in the world. And we see this happening over and over again with God's people. His concern is for the heart of his people. And we naturally tend to drift from God because we know that the Bible tells us that we're sinners. We're born into a broken and a fallen world. And and so our own hearts are sinful. And and the people come back, though, in this courtroom uh, battle, and they have this rebuttal, right? And they say, but we're, we're the people of God. We have this identity as being God's people, and we're busy doing the work of the Lord by doing all of these feast days, and we go to the temple all the time, and we do all these religious sacrifices. We're busy worshiping God. How could you have issue with us, God? But then God asks the critical question, right? To what purpose is your multitude of sacrifices? Because they certainly were busy in worship. I mean, uh, we think we're busy in church today, but I'll bet you if we went back and looked at the, the, the Israelite cultic system, I mean, they probably had multiple times of prayer a day, and they had to perform sacri- animal sacrifices, and they had all these holy feast days that, I mean, they probably would put us to shame religiously, right? And yet it says that they were full of iniquity at the same time. Their hearts weren't focused on their relationship with God. Their religiosity was just a show that somehow allowed them to feel better about themselves and pat themselves on the back saying they were doing what God expected them to do, but then they were pursuing all the wrong things in their relationships in the world. We can get busy doing church too, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that we give our time and our energy to, but, but maybe God would have a question for you and for me in this Christmas season is as you're putting up the lights on your house and you're shopping for all the gifts and you're preparing uh, to come to church on Christmas Eve, is it all just for religious show or is, is your heart being drawn back to the God who created you and who invites you to see that he's provided a way for your own sin and your own brokenness to be forgiven and washed clean so that you can find a new sense of joy in your relationship with him again this Christmas. We can get so caught up in the busyness of Christmas that we can miss the true heart and the message of Christmas as well. In Isaiah's day, the priests and the sacrifices and the feast days were, were highly impressive, they drew big crowds, but, but it says that it became a burden on God's heart rather than a blessing. See, when our hearts are not 
focused on the things of the Lord, all of our religious activity can become more of a burden to God than a blessing. And yet, the good news always comes at the close of the chapter is an appeal for his people to change their hearts and to find new hope in him. In verse 18, it says, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You see God's tone here. You see his language. He's not saying, hey, if you do this, then this will happen. He's saying, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to provide the way for your sins to be forgiven. I'm going to provide the way for salvation to become real for you. God is saying that he will create a way of dealing with human sin, not as something that, that people have to do, but something that he will do, that he will invite us to receive as his gift to us. And then this opens the door for God to begin to introduce the idea that even though people will continue to turn their hearts from him, he will pursue them and provide the means of their salvation. And this idea of hope for salvation, even in the midst of our own sin and brokenness, begins with the simple idea of a branch. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of the survivors in Israel. Now, we have to understand that the grapevine was an important symbol for the people of Israel. It was kind of their, their national symbol, right? God was viewed as this heavenly gardener, this, this vineyard owner who, who planted a vineyard and who tended it and cared for it, all with the hope that it would produce grapes, that it would produce fruit. And so we have this idea of fruitfulness throughout the Bible. And it's this idea that, that, that God desires the fruitfulness of his people to be a demonstration of who he is and who he's created them to be. And what is the fruitfulness that he looks for? It's the fruit of righteousness, right? It's, it's how we live in relationship with God and with one another and the world around us. And so we see this idea being carried forward in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, with the, the song of the vineyard. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. <laughs> You see, if we recognize our own experience of God in these passages, we recognize that God has blessed us as well. God has done so much to tend us and to bring us into relationship with him, and yet so often we turn our hearts away from the fruit of righteousness in our lives, and we seek after other things that somehow we think are going to make us happy, but only leave us disappointed and leave a wake of hurt and pain in a wake of our lives and our relationships. Therefore, when we get to chapter 6, Isaiah himself is humbled, right? He says, Woe to me, I cried, because I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and a, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. 
See, even here in this religious context of the altar, we see that God is planting the seed that he is going to provide the means for the atonement of the sins of the people. He's going to bring people back into relationship with himself, not because of something that Isaiah does or because of what people do, but because what God will provide, the, 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 the stone from the altar, right, that, that cleanses the lips of his prophet is a foreshadowing of the Messiah that he's going to send into the world. And even though Isaiah responds favorably and he humbly falls and says, here am I, send me, we go on to read through the story that not all of the people of Israel responded that way to his word. In fact, we know that King Ahaz, who was one of the bad kings who he served under, uh, turned his heart away from God and refused to come back to God for this kind of blessing. And so in chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord God to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so we come full circle back to Luke chapter 2. That all the way back here in Isaiah, in 750 years before Jesus was even born, as God is setting the scene for this branch to come from the vineyard that is going to produce the fruit of righteousness in the world, is none other than a person that is going to be born into the world and, and amazingly is going to be born to a young woman. The sign is a woman and a child. And when that sign comes, you will know that God's promise is being fulfilled in the world. And when you see that sign, you will know that God's promise is being fulfilled for you as well today. In the prophecy of Isaiah, this, this branch becomes a person, and that person becomes identified as Emmanuel, the one who will be God with us. Now, let me just say that prophecy doesn't only give us knowledge about the future. It's not just about predicting future events that somehow makes us go, wow, that's amazing, right? But it's supposed to give us comfort and encouragement because the God who provides these clues to his activity in history is the same God who is with us today, who is working in your life, who wants to encourage you that he's made a way for you to stay connected with him as well. See, in our own lives, we don't know what the future holds, right? We can't predict what's going to happen to us later today or tomorrow or next week or in the next few years. But we do know that the trends and the tendencies of God's pattern with his people that he's woven into scripture and in this prophetic word gives us an understanding of the kind of God that we're in a relationship with. And therefore, we can have faith and we can have trust and we can have hope that no matter what we're going through, he is with us and he has a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. In whatever time and space we find ourselves, the Bible and its prophetic teaching enables us to understand our own experience of relationship with God as Christians today. 
And we, as we said, Isaiah lived through both good and evil kings while apostasy continued to gnaw away at the heart of his people. And even though they experienced outward prosperity at the beginning of the story, the inward heart that turned away from God ultimately led them through all of this religious activity that was for nothing, and, and they ended up going into exile. And so I just want to wrap us up today as we, again, just kind of open the door to looking at Isaiah this season to ask, you know, what, what can we learn from Isaiah ourselves? What, what might be here for you and for me? It, it's easy for us, I, I'd like to suggest from my own experience and from what we see here in Isaiah, for us to, to lose that first love with the Lord. Isn't that true? It's easy for us to lose that first love with the Lord. You guys remember if you are a believer, when you first made that realization that God was real and that Jesus was alive and that he was, had forgiven all of your sins and, and, and the, the, the amazing joy and excitement and, and the energy that come from recognizing that all of these things that you had heard are actually true and it's real and you're experiencing it firsthand yourself. How easy is it for us to lose that sense of immediacy and passion in our relationship with God. I know it's easy for me because I get weighed down by the, the schedule and the busyness and, and, and the relationships and how hard life can be. And yet God is reminding us that it's that first love experience of God that keeps our relationship with him alive. Can I encourage us not to just go through the motions again this Christmas season? Next Sunday after this service, there's going to be a prayer time that our prayer team is going to lead where we can come and spend time engaging with God and preparing our hearts and our minds to have our focus in the right place and to, to get back on track with him. I'd encourage you, consider to come and stay and pray after the service is over next week. Are we looking for the true joy of Christmas this year? Or, or maybe you feel like you're in exile Maybe you're one of those people that feels like, man, God, I don't even know where God is. I read the Bible and it's just dry. I, I, I can't get a sense of that passion or that intimacy. In fact, I might even be questioning whether God is real anymore. Maybe this Christmas season, God is using the, the, the words of Isaiah to invite you to open your heart again to the possibility that he wants to draw you back into a relationship with him in a fresh, in a new way. Not because of anything that you've done, but because he loves you and he wants to give this to you as your free gift this Christmas. Are we anticipating the coming of the king or the work of the suffering servant in our lives? Are we ready to, to welcome and participate the anointed conqueror who's promised to come and overcome all the powers of evil in this world and most importantly, the powers of evil at work in our own lives and our own hearts that want to tell us that God doesn't even see or care what we're going through? Well, for you and for me, the words of Isaiah say, if you are looking for the coming king, if you are ready for the suffering servant, if you want the power of the conquering anointed one in your life this Christmas, God has prepared a sign for you. The virgin will conceive and bring forth a son and call him Emmanuel. He is God with us. Joy is an announcement of that celebration, but it's also a statement of faith that that is true. The good news of Christmas that brings joy to the world is named Jesus, and he is with us. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken through the ages, through your prophet, prophets, through your son, through the apostles, that we have your word that reminds us that you have had a plan that you have been pursuing and that you in that plan have been pursuing each one of us with a passion that desires to see us experience your fruitfulness in our lives. God, open our hearts and our minds to your presence and your work in our lives and help us to see how we can be a part of the fruitfulness of your righteousness, not only for our own health and healing and wholeness, but so that we can be a part of giving that same gift and good news away to others. In Jesus' name, amen.